Good, well, let's move to the, uh, the main um, purpose of today, which is the talk from um, Cecile Fabre. Um, many of you will know Professor Fabre, um, uh, a member of this university. Uh, she's a tutorial fellow at Lincoln College, and uh, since she last spoke to us uh, here in this format, she's become a fellow of the British Academy, which is a tremendous honour. We congratulate her on that. And she has a forthcoming book with Oxford University Press um, called Cosmopolitan War. Yeah. Yes. Great, Cecile. Okay, thank you very much um, for inviting me to give this talk um, and for coming to this talk as well this afternoon. Um, I'm going to talk about the um, ethics of belligerent uh, occupation, and it's a subject which is um, important to me for two reasons. First of all, hardly anyone. Uh, in the philosophy of war talks about military occupation, so it's always you know, nice to latch on to something which is relatively underexplored. Um, but the topic also has a very deep uh, personal resonance for me for the following reasons. Well, you will know, of course, that between 1940 and 1944, most of my home country's territory, France, was occupied by the German army. My maternal grandmother, her parents and her sister were living in Normandy, which was occupied by the Germans at the time, and they had to share, literally, their house with five German soldiers for the duration of the war. Now, most of those soldiers only stayed for a few weeks, but two of them stayed for two and a half years. Now, the soldiers, who were all very young, um, and I'm told by my grandmother, very polite, very kind, very shy, they lived on the second floor you know, of the house, and my family had the use of the ground and first floor. And so occupiers and occupied had no choice every single day but to pass each other in the stairs, in the kitchen, or in the courtyard. My relatives had to decide every single day for four years, whether to respond to the soldiers' attempt to engage in conversation, whether to comfort those very young soldiers when the latter would break down in the courtyard having heard dreadful news from home. They had to decide, my relatives had to decide, whether to sell those soldiers a turkey for Christmas as politely Requested. In other words, they had to decide every single day for four years and in their own home whether to treat those five soldiers primarily as enemies, primarily as human beings, or a little bit of both. <coughs> treat them as enemies and risk their anger for those soldiers, however young, however shy, however polite, nevertheless were bearing arms and were on the lookout for resistance activity. Treat them as human beings and risk the anger of your compatriots who could denounce you as resistance in the early stages of the war or collaborators in its closing stages. Now, crucially, these young men too had to make similar decisions. They had to decide how to treat my relatives, particularly the two young girls, young women, you know, really. Treat them with care and compassion and risk the anger of your superior officers and a place on the next convoy to Stalingrad. Treat them with 
harshness and risk losing any goodwill that those people might have towards you in whose house you live and whose cooperation you need. Now, occupying forces are no longer billeted in civilian houses. They live in military bases of their own, which can sprawl um, into and involve into small human towns as the occupation goes on. Nevertheless, occupied populations are in daily contact with occupying forces in the knowledge that they are, more often than not, largely powerless in that extraordinarily complex and multifaceted relationship to which the status and the role of the soldiers as occupiers is absolutely central. Now, negotiating those complex relationships, literally living with the enemy, does not always require grant decisions and solemn gestures. More often than not, it requires daily acts of moral compromise, which might not seem very significant when taken on their own, but whose cumulative effect under the shadow of war can and does corrode the civilians' self-respect and moral integrity. It seems to me that military occupation, particularly when it takes place as the war still goes on, is one of the harshest dilemmatic conditions which individuals might have to face. And yet, despite the revival of the ethics of war in the last 40 years or so, indeed, despite... um, Israel's decade-long occupation of the West Bank, the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan by the US-led coalition, there is a dearth of works on this particular phenomenon. Now, we could you know, speculate about this. I suspect that one of the reasons why you know, philosophers of war have spent very little time you know, in the last decades or so talking about military occupation is because most of them come from countries, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, whose armies have um, occupied, whose countries have not been occupied in living memory, to say the least in the case of Britain. We have to go back to 1066 to find an instance of military occupations from the Normans, as it happens. Um, It's quite (coughs) easy, or relatively easy, it seems to me, to not have to think about occupation when it takes place you know, far away you know, from home and when you don't have in your family you know, someone who is deployed. It's much harder to ignore it when you can still find traces of its legacy long after the fact, in our case, in the form of German army invoices which had been left to gather dust under our bedroom floorboards for 60 years. And so this is my topic today. More precisely, the dilemmas which I've described you know, at the start of this talk are one feature of occupation, albeit one of its most poignant. But I think equally significant, and my focus today, are the moral rights and duties which occupiers and occupied have vis-à-vis one another. For in order to describe a particular situation as a dilemma, you need to have a sense as to whether or not which the options that you might be tempted to pursue are indeed morally right or, as the case may be, morally wrong. And in particular, one must have a sense of the extent to which one would wrong others by choosing a particular course of action vis-à-vis occupiers or choosing another course of action. Moreover, those who live under a military occupation typically have a very, very strong set of views about what is the right or the wrong thing to do vis-à-vis occupying forces. 
as witnessed by the extraordinarily harsh treatment, both judicial and extrajudicial, <coughs> you know, meted out um, to a fair amount of categories of civilians after the end of the Second World War, those civilians who were deemed to have collaborated with the enemy. Or indeed, as witnessed by the very harsh judgments typically made on those who, on the contrary, dare resist occupying forces and, in so doing, expose their compatriots to very severe reprisals. And I think, therefore, it pays carefully to examine whether those judgments are correct. So that, this is what I want to do this afternoon. I want to begin to sketch an account of the moral rights and moral duties of belligerent occupants and occupied populations vis-à-vis -vis one another. And my central claim... Oh, by the way, sorry, I should have asked this. Does everyone have a handout? Yeah. Are there some spares at the back? Okay, okay I'm not going to use PowerPoint because I hate PowerPoint. So if there are some spares at the back, or maybe you can share with everyone what you see. So, sorry for the uh, interruption, I should have checked that. So, um, the, the claim that I'm going to defend today um, is that the rights and duties of um, occupied populations and occupying forces are very largely dependent on the moral status of the war which led to the occupation in the first instance. And in defending that view, I set myself against international law as it stands and against the set of moral principles and values which underpins the international <coughs> law of occupation. So I shall proceed as follows. Um, first, I shall set out what the international law of occupation and the set of moral principles which underpin it have to say about those rights and duties. I call that view the orthodox view. And then I will make my case to the effect that the orthodox view is misleading by concentrating in my talk this afternoon on the case of unjust wars leading to occupation. In order to make my case fully, I would have first to give you an account of the rights and duties of occupying forces and occupied civilians when the war which precedes the occupation and leads to it is a just war. And I do that in the long written version of the paper. I only have you know, 45, 50 minutes. I don't have the time to do this. So what I'm going to do instead is to look at the harder for my position, the harder case of unjust wars leading to occupation. Before I launch into my exposition, I need to make two background claims. The first is that this paper unfolds against a background theory of justice, which I will set out. I will not defend it here. I stated in full on the handout, briefly, uh, according to that background theory of justice, all individuals have rights to the freedoms and resources which they need in order to lead a minimally flourishing or decent life. In other words, fundamental human rights to basic civil and political liberties, as well as to a sufficient amount of material resources. Those rights correlate you know, into duties, and in particular, a prima facie duty not to directly harm others for the sake of securing their own survival. At the same time, I take it for granted that there are limits to the sacrifices which they can be expected to incur for the sake of others. In particular, I take the view, and this will become important you know, later on in the talk, I take the view that individuals cannot be expected to divest themselves of resources which they currently have 
if they would have a less than minimally decent life as a result. The views that are set out here could be illustrated by an example. Suppose that um, there is an attacker coming into the room, you know, bursting in, and he's trying to kill me. On the views that I set out here, even if the only way for me to save my life is by some sort of, you know, causal mechanism to kill, you know, David, who is completely innocent of what this attack is doing, I may not do so. I may not harm David deliberately, you know, as a means to protect myself from that attacker. Contrastingly, however, if um, I only have one remaining loaf of bread in, in my rightful possession, I'm not under a duty to give David that loaf of bread if, as a result, I would die of starvation, even though by giving him the loaf of bread, I would save you know, his life. And I'll explain later on in the talk why this point is important. The second background claim that I want to make, which is listed as uh, B on the handout in the relevant paragraph, is that on my view, a war is unjust ad bellum if it, if it fails to meet the requirements of just cause, proportionality, reasonable chance of success, and last resort. In this paper, I will focus on cases where the war is just without just cause. So this is the stage, as it were, for the argument to follow. Uh, let me now turn to what I call the orthodox view of uh, belligerent occupation, by which I mean to repeat um, the international law in the, of military occupation and the set of moral principles and values which underpin it. First, I need to make clear that my focus in this paper is belligerent occupation or occupatio bellica in the juridical Latin you know, of scholars. Belligerent occupation differs from other kinds you know, of occupation. In particular, it differs from occupation following uh, debellatio. You know, debellatio is the state of affairs that obtains when uh, the enemy has collapsed completely, as Germany de did you know, in um, 1945. Belligerent occupation is also different from transformative occupation that can take place when, for example, a party in a conflict intervenes in um, a humanitarian conflict and seeks from within to reform the target state institutional structures. By belligerent occupation, I mean, roughly following international law, an occupation which meets the following six conditions, which are listed A to F on the handout. First of all, war is ongoing. The belligerent occupier, which I will call occupant, henceforth, is taking part in that war. Occupant effectively exercises powers of government <coughs> over the occupied territory. Occupied has not consented to occupant's control. <coughs> Occupied's own government has merely been displaced or considerably weakened rather than annihilated, so that there is a trilateral relationship between occupant, that displaced government, and the civilian population of the occupied territory. And finally, a peace treaty has not yet been concluded between occupant and occupied. So the war is ongoing in the following two senses, in the sense that occupant is still engaged in a, in a conflict, uh, largely outside the borders of occupied territory, with some other party. The war is ongoing also in the sense that, to repeat, a peace treaty has not been concluded between occupant and occupied. Uh, this is a fairly standard 
as far as I can tell, having read the relevant legal literature, it is a fairly standard account you know, of what is belligerent occupation in international law. Um, there are some comments to make, um, which is that those conditions, some of those conditions do need um, you know, qualifying. So if you look at condition C, whereby occupant effectively exercises powers of government and uh, over, sorry, the occupied territory, it is important to note, and I will return to this later on, that the cooperation of local indigenous officials is necessary for occupant to carry out its task. With respect to the fourth condition, which stipulates that occupied has not consented to occupant's control, well, again, um, the displaced sovereign or government sometimes does consent to the occupation, as in fact France did you know, through its own government in 1940. It would be very odd to say that France was not occupied in the north by Germany, just in virtue of the fact that its own government had in fact consented to the occupation. Finally, with respect to the fifth condition, um, uh, sometimes there can be a quadrilateral relationship when there is a national liberation movement alongside the displaced regime, a movement which does claim to have you know, some right to uh, become the proper de jure government of that community once the war is over. Now, with those comments in place, let me very briefly outline the complex body of laws which pertain to belligerent occupation. They are to be found in the so-called Hague Regulations of 1907 and the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. Mm. The first point I want to make, bottom of page one, and this is really absolutely crucial for my overall argument, which is that in law, military occupation um, is part of the use in Bello. You know, of course, that the laws of war in general, the morality of war in particular, you divide um, uh, between use ad bellum, the set of principles and rules which ought to regulate the resort to war, use in bello, the set of rules and principles which ought to regulate conduct in war. Now, given that it is a stipulation of a belligerent occupation that the war is still ongoing, it makes sense that in the international law, the set of rules and principles that regulate the conduct of occupants and occupied vis-à-vis -vis one another partakes, as it were, of use in bello. Now, I stress this uh, for, the, for the following reason. According to the laws of war and the moral principles which underpin it, the rights, duties and liabilities of belligerents in bello are the same irrespective of the moral status of their war at Bellum. More precisely, soldiers on either side you know, of the conflict are at liberty to kill one another, irrespective of the justness of the cause for which they fight. So for those of you who are not necessarily very familiar with the literature, on that traditional account, the orthodox account, soldier A may kill soldier B in self-defense, even if he, soldier A, wrongfully takes part in the unlawful aggression of B's country by his army, and even if, thus, soldier B rightfully takes part in his country's legitimate defense of its sovereignty and territory. 
Soldier A may also kill civilian members of B if the latter are taking a very active part in the war. And the reason why soldiers on the orthodox view on opposing sides of the war are to be deemed one another's moral equal has been articulated by a number of philosophers and lawyers, most notably uh, Michael Walter. On that view, broadly speaking, individual soldiers cannot be expected to form a judgment as to the justness of the war. Once the war has started, they are morally on a par with respect vis-à-vis -vis one another. Now, insofar as the law of military occupation is part of use in value, then by implication, according to the law of military occupation, the rights and duties of occupying forces are the same whether or not the war which leads to the occupation is a just and unjust war. So on that traditional you know, account, the occupation of Italy by the Americans and the British from 1943 to 1945 was subject to exactly the same legal regime as the occupation by Germany of her foes during that period even though we might grant, for the sake of argument, the invasion of Italy by the Allies in 1943 had a just cause, whereas, I'm also assuming, I hope plausibly, for the sake of argument, that the invasion of her enemies by Germany in 1939-1940 lacked you know, a just cause. So the first point to note about the international law of occupation is that it confers symmetry, more symmetry, as it were, you know, between occupying forces, between respective or different occupying forces, irrespective of the moral status of the war, which leads to the occupation in the first instance. Now, this doesn't tell you anything about the set of rights, powers, and duties which occupant or occupying forces enjoy. And briefly, you know, in a nutshell, summarising from the various two legal documents <coughs> at the beginning. You know, of this paper, those rights and duties are the following. That occupant is not sovereign, suddenly, over occupied territory. An occupation is not, explicitly not, an election of the occupied country. But although occupant, turning now top of page two of your handout, although occupant is not sovereign, it does enjoy powers of government, and in particular powers to issue and enforce legal directives in three cases. If domestic laws violate the laws of war, then occupant has the legal competence to change domestic laws and to issue new legal directives which will comply with the laws of war of uh, occupied territory. If law and order require new directives and as a means to bolster its own war effort, so occupant is deemed legally competent to take security measures to pass laws aimed at meeting the acute needs of occupied civilian populations by introducing rationing, you know, for example. It can enact taxation laws for the purpose of defraying the costs of the occupation and meeting the needs of its own forces, of an OT. So these broadly are the considerable legal powers which occupying forces are given in international law. But occupying forces also have duties, this is important, to preserve order and to secure conditions for civic life. And this does include a duty to, for example, restrict 
the freedoms of occupied citizens, for example, freedom of movement, if occupant deem it to be the case, that to grant freedom of movement to occupied you know, populations will result in breaches of law, peace, and order. So that in the traditional laws of military occupation, an occupant is deemed legally competent to deem all resistant activity illegal as a, an acceptable breach of peace. Finally, occupying forces and their officials have rights to appropriate and requisition material you know, resources, in some cases with no compensation due, in other cases against you know, compensation. Now, interestingly, in my view, the requisitions cannot be used to meet the need of occupants' own citizens back home. <clears throat> this is important. Those requisitions can be used only to meet the needs of its own forces in place in occupied territory, as well as to fund <coughs> its ongoing war outside this territory. Now, without wanting to get you know, into too many details, I don't need to tell you that the crucial issue here, of course, is uh, that of the extent to which and the grounds upon which, in law, occupying forces are uh, legally able to exploit natural resources you know, to be found under the territory um, of occupied populations. And the law, I mean, there is a good deal of controversy, but um, the consensus amongst the legal scholars I have Right, seems to be that um, uh, occupant can do that. Um, what it cannot do is um, exploit those natural resources, so reserves of oil, until there is nothing left, because that would be tantamount to destroying those natural resources, and they are legally prohibited you know, to do so. So these are the legal rights, duties, and powers of occupying forces. What about occupied, you know, populations? That you, you can't really. Um, start thinking about occupation without really taking on board the fact that an occupation, in order for it to be successful, and whatever your measure of success is you know, in this particular case, cannot take place without putting boots on the ground. So you can't you know, govern an occupied territory without having ground troops. You cannot do it from the air. You cannot do it from the sea. In other words, an occupation relies on the cooperation of occupied citizens to a much greater extent than is generally acknowledged. You can understand why a lot of people find it very difficult you know, to talk frankly about the degree to which, in any given case, you know, local occupied populations have you know, cooperated with, um, uh, with occupants. There is a lot of shame. You know, many taboos. We would all like to think that we would all resist if suddenly you know, we were invaded. Um, but that's an illusion, including in the Channel Islands. That's not something which is often you know, talked about in Britain, but the Channel Islands were occupied you know, for much of the war. And reading about the experience of the islanders, both uh, ordinary citizens, but also the officials we, who were left, you know, more or less, to find ways on their own without much guidance at all from Westminster, ways of dealing with German soldiers who suddenly one day arrived by air and sea. That's a really you know, fascinating uh, thing to read about. <coughs> we, we do need to look at the legal rights and duties of occupied you know, populations. So in brief, remember that um, it is a feature of a belligerent you know, military occupation that there still is a displaced you know, regime. 
and that displaced regime does remain competent to legislate over the occupied territory, provided that its directives do not conflict with occupants' directives. Provided that its directives, in other words, do not place its citizens in the individual situation of being in breach of the laws enacted by occupants. Occupied citizens, crucially, in the law, are not under a duty to occupant to obey its directives. Remember, an occupation is not an annexation of sovereignty. The occupying forces are not sovereign there. And so occupied citizens do not owe a duty of allegiance in law to occupied for, to occupying forces, but they may cooperate with those forces. There is nothing in the laws of occupation which prohibit occupied citizens from cooperating with occupying forces. At the same time, they may not resist occupants' lawful directives. For example, if an occupant issues directive in virtue of which it is a crime, the crime of sabotage, to blow up in a military convoy, then occupied populations may not breach that directive by, for example, blowing up a military convoy, particularly if the displaced regime has concluded an armistice with occupant. The moral status of that displaced regime is irrelevant. Now, as you can imagine, there is some unease about this um, latter point, which has been, as ever, uh, very interestingly characterized by Michael Walzer as follows in his book, Just and Unjust Wars. He has a well-known discussion of guerrilla warfare against occupying forces, where he looks at the case of um, French resistance who disguised themselves as peasants and were able, as a result, to come very close to German soldiers and managed to kill a few of them. Now, according to Walzer, on some standard views of the laws of occupation, those French partisans could be deemed to have betrayed the armistice agreement passed between the French in the regime and Germany and to have committed a very serious breach of faith. At the same time, Walzer notes, to the extent that individuals are not subsumed under the decisions of the government, and to the extent that, in fact, the German occupation was unlawfully conducted, those partisans could be deemed to have acted legitimately. And yet, according to Walzer, those German soldiers themselves, who attempted to kill those French partisans in self-defense, and those officials who punished the French resistance for murder, also had a justification for so acting, since they could not hope to ensure and restore public life under the constant threat of attack. What the rights, I quote, resistance is legitimate and the punishment of resistance is legitimate. That may seem like a simple standoff and an abdication of ethical judgment. It is actually a precise reflection of the moral realities of military defeat. I disagree with Walter. His view rests on a very, in my view, implausible account of the relative moral status of occupant and occupier. A view, an account which fails to take into account the moral status of the war which the occupant won and is still prosecuting outside occupied territory. And what I want to do now is to move away from the law and to present an account of the rights, duties of occupant and occupied in those cases where the war which led to the occupation 
could be characterized as a unjust war, and that's section three, you know, on your handout. As I noted earlier, the law of belligerent occupation is part of use in Bello, the provisions of which are deemed to apply to all belligerents, irrespective of the moral status of their war at Bellum, and in particular, irrespective of the moral status of their cause. On that view, to repeat, just as soldiers who carry out a wrongful aggression are permitted to kill enemy soldiers who rightfully defend their countries and vice versa, occupying powers have exactly the same rights, duties, and abilities over occupied populations, irrespective of the status of their war at Bellum. Now, as many of you will know, the view that um, use in Bello is independent from use at Bellum has come under very sustained, serious and sustained attack from a number of scholars who have, including myself, who have sought to revise an older, revive, sorry, an older pre-modern account of the right to kill in war. On that pre-modern account, whether your war is just at Bellum has a crucial bearing on whether or not you are permitted to kill enemy soldiers in Bello. On that older account, if you do take part in, for example, a wrongful aggression on another community, and if enemy soldiers, by implication, take part in the rightful defense of their community against an army, you may not kill them in self-defense, whereas they may kill you in their own defense and in defense of their homeland. Put differently, for soldiers to kill enemy soldiers in a prosecution in prosecution of an unjust war is morally wrong. For them to be killed in the course of prosecuting a just war is also morally wrong, a wrongdoing which is not entirely dissimilar to murder. Now, I think that this is the right way to think about the right and permission to kill in war, for reasons which I not going to set out in a great deal of detail here. I mean, we can talk you know, about that later on in the discussion. What I want to do is to apply that revisionist account of the right to kill in war to the problem of occupation following an unjust war. So suppose that at time T1, A's regime orders A's army to invade B's territory without just cause, and suppose further that A has also wrongfully invaded the territory of another community, C. B's regime surrenders and its leaders flee in exile. A's armed forces are occupying B's territory at T2, <coughs> at the same time as A is still waging its war against C. Now, ex hypothesis on the revisionist count, insofar as soldiers A were fighting an unjust war when they attacked B at T1, they lacked the right to kill soldiers B in prosecution of that war. By the same token, they lack the right to stay in B once the fighting following B's surrender has ceased at T2. So let me provide a domestic analogy. Andrew, Ben, and Charlotte are three characters in this domestic you know, analogy. So suppose that Andrew invades um, uh, the, uh, the house um, in which Charlotte and Ben live. He has no justification for so doing. Ben decides to flee. 
in order to take the fight you know, outside. Charlotte stays in the house for a whole range of reasons. She remains stuck inside. She has to think about the children who that way are you know, housed, fed, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, Andrew decides that he might as well use the house as a base to continue to pursue his criminal activities. He's very willing to have Charlotte stay there, provided that she makes herself scarce, obeys his directives, and gives him the resources he needs um, in order to keep his business going. He makes it very clear that he will not use that he will use lethal force against her and her children if she decides to resist. Now, it seems to me absolutely blindingly obvious that Andrew lacks the right to remain in the house. That neither Charlotte nor indeed Ben are under a duty to him to provide him with any assistance at all, or indeed a duty not to try to kick him out. In fact, they would do him no wrong by killing him should the opportunity arise and should this be the only way to get rid of him. And the same, in my view, applies to occupant. Except his eye, occupant does not have a just cause for invading B's territory, for, from which it follows that it lacks a just cause for remaining there unless, as we shall see later on, circumstances change in such a way that it comes to acquire a justification for staying. But absent such a change in circumstances, its officials lack the moral power to issue directives aimed at safeguarding their own and other soldiers' safety. They lack the more power to raise taxes, to requisition movable resources, and use immovable property as a means to meet either the occupation-related needs or the demands of the unjust war which their regime is still waging against sea. More clearly still, I believe, they may not enforce their wrongful directives by killing those who oppose them. That's the simple bare-bone case in favour of the view that if occupying forces are you know, in a particular territory as occupant following a non-just war against that particular population, then they simply ought not to stay there. They ought to withdraw. And they lack the whole array of rights, duties and powers which international law grants them. Now, you might object to this Turning over to the top of page three, you might object to this on the following grounds. You might say, well, if B's regime concludes an armistice with A and allows A to occupy B's territory, B's regime, in effect, transfers its own power of government to A's officials on behalf of its own citizens. And we, those citizens, so B citizens, acquire an obligation to those officials, occupying officials, to comply with their directives. This is the kind of argument which was invoked during the Second World War, you know, for example, to justify the view that um, uh, occupied populations, you know, whose own government had complete anonymous with Germany, you know, owed it to German officials you know, not to breach the terms of the armistice. And I have two replies to that objection. The first one is that consent given under the duress of impending military defeat at the hands of an unjust aggressor cannot, in my view, bind B's officials and citizens to A's officials. I don't think that consent given under those particular conditions is morally transformative in the way that the objection suggests. 
Second, even if consent is morally transformative under those conditions, in the way that the objection suggests, B's officials can only transfer to A's officials, to occupants, rights which ultimately are vested in B's citizens. They cannot transfer to A's officials, to occupants, the right to levy taxes and to requisition resources to promote unjust ends. In this instance, the pursuit of A's ongoing unjust war against C. And this is because B citizens lack that right in the first instance. Is this to say that there is absolutely nothing that occupant is morally entitled to do with respect to its occupation? No, it doesn't. Occupant is under clearly a moral duty to restore order and protect public life. Occupant does, in fact, in my view, have the moral power to protect occupied civilians from one another through, for example, the enforcement of criminal law or to provide for their needs. However, and this is crucial, it seems to me that occupied civilians do not owe to occupants an obligation to comply. They owe that obligation to one another as fellow residents of this occupied inner territory. Now, this is important because it implies that occupied populations under a unjust occupation do not, know, do not owe any obligation to occupying forces not to resist their directives. The point that I want to make here is important. Um, during an occupation, common criminals still warrant arresting. Local indigenous officials might not be in a position to enforce domestic laws over occupied territory. And it seems to me that there ought to be space, in your further view, that an occupant, which is an unjust occupant at the bar of the ethics of war I'm articulated, is morally entitled to step into the breach, if you will, left by indigenous officials' inability or unwillingness you know, to do their part when promoting public life, public safety, and so on. But this does not imply that occupied civilians, to repeat, are under a moral obligation to occupying forces not to resist their rule when the opportunity so arises. Now, I said earlier that um, the account ought to be qualified in the following way that the circumstances might change in such a way as to provide either to unjust occupant with the justification for continuing with the occupation. And I want to talk you know, about this particular case in a moment, but before I do that, I want first to address the case where an unjust occupation comes together, as it were, with a just war. And this is um, the case that I have in mind. Suppose that A's occupation of B is unjust, but that its war against C is just. Now, the example that I have in mind here is the, uh, the following. Uh, in June 1940, uh, under the terms of a secret protocol which was added to the 1939 Pact of Non-Aggression signed by Germany and the USSR, under the term of that secret protocol, Soviet forces invaded all three Baltic states, eliminated their officials and installed Soviet personnel in their place. As you know, on the 22nd of June 1941, Germany breached the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact of 1939, 
and invaded the USSR. <coughs> so the USSR found itself occupying, at the same time occupying the Baltic states, and at the same time fighting a war of self-defense against German forces. Now, the Soviet occupation of the Baltic states was clearly unjust. In fact, it is deemed illegal in international law. Whilst its war of self-defense against Germany, I'm assuming, was just, or at any rate, had a just cause. Now, why do I raise this particular case? It is an important feature of the law of occupation that an occupant, irrespective of the justness of its cause, can requisition resources from occupied populations in order to assist in the prosecution of the war which it is continuing to carry outside the borders of the occupied territory. So the question that I want to ask you now you know, is the following. Suppose that you have an unjust occupant, which was the status of the USSR in the Baltic state, which claims to need resources from those Baltic states in order to assist in its war effort against an unjust attacker, Germany, in this case. May occupant requisition those resources from the occupied populations, which it is occupying, ex hypothesis, unjustly? I don't think so. Before occupant taps into the resources of occupied population, it must deploy its own, for example, by withdrawing from the occupied territory altogether. Moreover, in taking from occupied civilians the resources, military and otherwise, which those civilians need in order to resist the occupation, it compounds its initial wrongdoing against them, the wrongdoing of unwarranted aggression, with the wrongdoing of a strengthened, unjust you know, occupation. So, you know, I, I don't think that the USSR would have been justified in requisitioning resources from Baltic you know, populations on the grounds that it was fighting an unjust war, sorry, a just war of self-defense um, against uh, Germany. In the, the paper, I ask also, and I'll pass over this now, but I ask whether occupied civilians nevertheless might be under duty to assist you know, in that war effort uh, themselves, and I conclude that they are not on the grounds that there are certain sacrifices that you cannot expect you know, people to incur for the sake of others. But what I want to do now, because time is pressing, is to move to the case of an occupation which starts out as unjust, we'll assume for the sake of argument, and of which we might want to say that it acquires over time a justification. And the example which is always used in the very scant literature on military occupation is the example of the um, occupation of Iraq, or rather the war against Iraq in 2003, and the subsequent occupation of that country by the US <coughs> coalition. So here is how the argument goes. Assume for the sake of argument that the coalition lacked a just cause for invading Iraq in 2003, from which um, this account that I'm articulating here, it follows fairly straightforwardly, at least at first sight, that the occupation of that country by those forces was unjust. So if they had no business invading in the first instance, they had no business staying there in the second instance, you know, if you will. But I think that to draw that conclusion, that the occupation of Iraq was always unjust, would be too quick. Because even if the coalition lacked a justification for waging war against Iraq in 2003, circumstances might have become such as to provide it 
with a justification for occupying it once Saddam Hussein's regime had collapsed. And so people at this point in the argument invoke the outbreak of a civil war and concomitant rights violations between different factions in the aftermath of the invasion. And that, we might think, would impose on the coalition, would not so much give the coalition the justification for occupying, but would impose on it a duty in order to do so. And I find that you know, view quite plausible, you know, really, certainly in this particular example. Now, quite often, you know, when I say, when I have said in conversations that it is a plausible view, you know, people have made the following objection. They have said, well, no, you, you forget the problem of moral hazard. Because if an unjust war can issue in a justified occupation as a result of the chaos created by the war, then people have objected to me, an unjust belligerent would have every incentive to prosecute its war in such a way as to create you know, those chaotic conditions, thereby providing itself you know, with a justification for staying, exploiting natural resources, you know, and so on and so forth. Something seems to have gone wrong there. Yeah, some people have objected to me. I'm not convinced that the objection is um, as decisive as it might seem. So first of all, my concern is with delineating the rights and duties you know, of occupant and occupied vis-a-vis -vis one another, and the claim that an unjust belligerent would have an incentive you know, to behave in such a way is not tantamount to the claim that it would be permitted you know, to do so. And I think it's important when we are faced you know, with objections which invoke you know, the problem of moral hazards, I mean, I think it is important not to fall into the trap of making that category mistake, you know, from saying there is an incentive so to behave, therefore that behavior is permissible. It's not. You know, they might have an incentive to do so that would be grievously wrong you know, in so acting. So I do think that there can be cases, and these are difficult cases, where an unjust war, indeed an unjust occupation, can become a just occupation. This is not to say that those people, individuals, officials, leaders, and so on, who orchestrate and carry out the now just occupation owe no duty whatsoever to the civilian populations who, in the first phase, if you will, of the occupation where ex are unjustly occupied, the fact that that just occupation arose you know, as a result of a wrongdoing will, it seems to me, issue you know, in differential burdens, as it were, which occupying soldiers must now bear when they have to make decisions as to what kind of priority to confer on their own lives vis-à-vis -vis the lives of occupied civilians. This is something that we can uh, uh, go back to in the discussion. Now, you will have noticed that I have not said anything at all so far about the difficult issue of collaboration and cooperation with unjust occupying forces. May occupied populations collaborate, cooperate, engage with a unjust Occupant. Now, I use the term engage to refer both to the mere act of entering into transactions and relationships widely understood with members of occupying forces in their private capacity and the act of actively cooperating with them in a public capacity. So examples of private engagement 
will include selling them goods such as food, tobacco, serving them in shops, having sex, you know, with them, <coughs> and so on. Examples of the latter will include cooperating with them when they act in such a way as to protect and enforce just laws in force in occupied territory or when they enact legislation which help promote conditions for civic life. Now, this is a difficult issue, um, and I will only say this. So first of all, the neoclassical account or the revisionist account of the right to kill in war, which says very clearly that the rights and duties of soldiers and occupiers are partly dependent on the moral status of the war that leads to the occupation, that account does not commit itself to the view, it seems to me, that engagement is with unjust you know, occupiers is morally impermissible. And I want to develop on this particular point by turning first to the issue of um, uh, cooperation by indigenous officials with unjust occupying forces. It seems to me that the following three considerations should be brought to bear. Officials will have to weigh up uh, the costs, moral costs, of active participation in occupants' wrongful ends, such as helping in the commission of genocidal acts, versus cooperating with occupants to bring about justified um, such as, for example, dealing with common murderers. Uh, again, I mean, to use you know, an example which I'm familiar with, uh, the example of the French police. I mean, you know, French police officers during the occupation did two things. And quite often the same individuals did two things. They assisted you know, the Gestapo in rounding up uh, Jews, French or you know, foreign, but they also assisted you know, in um, uh, some efforts by German occupying, force, occupying forces in um, arresting common murderers, you know, common thieves. To repeat a point I made earlier, you know, those parts of the criminal law still do need to be you know, enforced. And every single one of those police officers you know, had to decide what to do. I mean, they could have said, I'm resigning. I, I refuse to be complicitous in that regime. But the cost of so acting might well have been you know, leaving you know, occupied you know, civilians entirely you know, at the mercy of occupying forces, which in enforcing what seemingly was you know, standard you know, criminal law might have committed acts of atrocity you know, instead. Second, officials will have to balance the short-term interests of fellow occupied individuals versus the long-term interest in occupants' defeat. So in deciding that you are going to stay in post you know, in order to help your fellow citizens, you must be aware that you will, in so doing, help occupant they continue to prosecute its unjust occupation and ongoing war outside you know, your borders. That is one kind of consideration that you have to bring to bear on the decision that you will make whether or not to cooperate. And finally, you will have to balance um, between refraining from helping fellow citizens by residing and thereby not facilitating occupants' wrongful attacks on third parties as against helping your own fellow residents and thereby contributing to those third parties' predicament. That's related to the second point. I don't have any, as you will have gathered, I don't have any firm principle that this is you know, when you may resign, this is when you must resign. All I can do, this is the first step in this, in, in this inquiry, is at least identify 
you know, the set of issues, uh, or rather the interests which ought to be taken into account, you know, when making a decision, you know, as a local indigenous official, whether to collaborate, cooperate or not. What about, and I would finish, you know, with this, what about engaging with occupying forces? Again, never forget in this argument that these are unjust occupying forces, ex hypothesi. What about engaging with them in a private inner capacity? Now, so, I mean, this, this is the point that I want to make, you know, here. Um, I don't think that the revisionist account of occupation which I have tried to delineate is committed to the view that occupied civilians should not engage in any way whatsoever with unjust occupying forces. Unless occupying forces are rigidly kept apart from occupied civilians, the latter will have no choice but to engage with them, and I think it would not be opposite to condemn them for doing something which they cannot avoid doing. Nor would it be opposite to condemn occupied civilians for giving in either to the threat of coercion or to the simple need to earn a living, or both. It's one thing for a publican to refuse to serve a rude customer, it is quite another to turn away a gun-yielding soldier. It's one thing to shut down your business for fear of having to transact with the enemy when you have another source of income. It's another thing altogether to do so when you will not be able to feed your family as a result. Moreover, occupying soldiers are not simply enemies who, in the case at hand, have no claim to issue directives on us to consume our resources and to make use of our infrastructure. They are fellow human beings whom it is sometimes appropriate to treat as such. Now, this particular point might seem both um, naively obvious and obviously naive, um, but I think it does bear stressing. I began this paper by describing some of the choices which occupied civilians have to make when interacting with occupying forces in their private capacity. I noted that they have to decide whether to say hello every day, sometimes, whether to comfort, whether to transact. Now, I don't think it is morally inappropriate at all to treat a bereaved soldier as a human being with compassion when he's breaking down in your courtyard at 10 in the morning, having heard that his entire family had been destroyed in, for example, the bombing of Dresden or Hamburg. Although you could be forgiven for failing to treat him with compassion if the soldier in question was seen to take Jews to the local Gestapo the day before. But nor is it morally wrong, it seems to me, to sell them or to give them, as it happens in this case, a turkey for Christmas. But nor would you wrong him by detonating a mine several hours later at the exact moment the military convoy on which you know him to be is passing. To be sure, if you know at 10 in the morning that you are going to kill him at 7 in, a, in the evening, that you might think that it would be wrong to show him compassion or to give him a turkey. And should you give in to that very nat natural impulse, you might hate yourself for it. But then you might not think and feel that and it might well be appropriate for you not to be so torn apart if you had good reasons to believe that for all his polite reserve towards you and your family, he would not hesitate to kill you 
if ordered to do so by his superiors. That, I think, is the harsh reality of an unjust occupation, which is harsh precisely because it is made of very soft, grey moral nuances. Thank you very much. Thank you.